The scripture reading today is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> this is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The Lord will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So this Advent season, we'll be looking at some readings from the Old Testament prophets, readings that are often uh, read together in churches this time of year. And today's passage is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And what I'm going to suggest is that in these words from Isaiah, we see three things, all right? We see that our world is dark. Our world is dark. We see that our future is bright. And we see here that our calling as the people of God is clear. Those three things, dark world, bright future, clear calling. So uh, to begin, you and I live in a dark world. You know that. I know that. Isaiah knew that as well. Isaiah was a Hebrew prophet who lived in Judah in the 8th century B.C., and he lived during a time of great spiritual and social decline. The, uh, the northern tribes of Israel had long before turned their hearts from God and embraced paths of idolatry. The southern tribe of Judah, where, is, where, where Isaiah lived, the people were gradually drifting farther and farther from the Lord. People were oppressing the poor. They were forsaking the covenant. They were uh, looking to idols with faith rather than to God. So, this, this is what was happening. And all the while, judgment was looming on the horizon. Uh, Assyria was moving in from the north. Egypt was threatening from the south. Babylon was beginning to grow as a power in the east. And, and Isaiah's little nation, this little nation of Judah, was just surrounded by these huge, violent empires, any one of which could have just swallowed up the people of God. So it was a dark world. And in that dark world, Isaiah proclaimed this prophecy that we just heard. Now, the thing about this particular prophecy is that this is not unique to Isaiah. If you look up in the book of Micah, chapter 4, you will find basically the same message, almost word for word, the same message. So, both Micah and Isaiah are proclaiming the same thing. And, and uh, Micah, he was a contemporary of Isaiah's. They were part of the same generation. And so, when you compare the words of Micah in Micah chapter 4 with the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 2, you're not really sure um, who is copying whom, 
I mean, you don't know if, if Isaiah was quoting from Micah, if Micah was quoting from Isaiah. Many scholars think both of them might have been quoting from some earlier source. But either way, this, this prophecy here about the last days was not unique to Isaiah. What is unique to Isaiah, however, is what we read in verse 1. In, uh, in, in Micah's prophecy, you don't read anything like verse 1. Micah's prophecy just sort of appears on the page out of nowhere, no context. But in, in Isaiah, we read this. Verse 1, it says, This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. This is, this is what he saw concerning, concerning his city where he lived. So, th- th- I find this interesting. For Isaiah, this prophecy wasn't just some kind of fodder for end time speculation. This wasn't just some material for him to engage in debate about eschatology with his friends. No, listen, for Isaiah, this prophecy about the end days, this is what filled his heart when he walked the streets of his hometown. This is what Isaiah saw concerning Jerusalem. This is, this is the vision that just gripped him um, when he thought about the neighborhood where he lived. And I, 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 I could be wrong, but I just think that's important for us to notice. Just notice, Isaiah did not receive this vision about the brightness of the future until he was first willing to take an honest look at the darkness of his world. Let me repeat that. He, he didn't receive this vision about the brightness of the future until he was willing to just sit and look at the darkness of his world. And, and the reason I think that's important is because, just like Isaiah, you and I live in a dark world. I mean, just like him, you and I are surrounded everywhere we go with, with examples of, of human brokenness. So I think the question that confronted Isaiah is the same question that confronts you and, you and me, and that is, are we or are we not willing to just look at the brokenness of our world. According to the New York Times, over 100,000 New York City public school students were homeless last year. That's a lot of homeless kids. According to one city agency, one out of every five senior citizens in 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 our city lives below the poverty level. That's a lot of hungry grandmas. According to the state government, over 1.9 million New Yorkers, some of us here in this room, struggle with substance abuse problems. That's a lot of people in the death throes of a wrestling with something that wants to control them. So everywhere we look, we're just surrounded, aren't we? Surrounded by brokenness. And if you know the Bible, and I'm confident that most of you do, if you know the Bible, you know that, don't you know this, the brokenness in this world, it's not just out there, right? There's a lot of brokenness in here. Would you agree with me that we're all broken? The Bible says that we all struggle with fear, we all struggle with anxiety, we all struggle with doubts. In fact, the Bible is, is very honest. It just says we all struggle with sin. Romans 3 verse 10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11 says, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Verse 12 says, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. And then verse 23 of that chapter says, all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. So listen, um, just like Isaiah, when we look at the world around us and when we look at the world within us, what do we see? Brokenness. We live, we live, in, a, we live in a dark world. So that's one thing we see here. Second thing we, we see, not just that our, our world is dark, we see that our future is very bright. Let me read. I love these words. Let me read them again. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. What a, what a vision of the, what a bright vision of the future. Now, obviously, when you read those words, you almost instinctively recognize, don't you, that this, this contains a lot of poetic language, right? This is, there's a lot of symbolic imagery here. So when you read this, you, you want to be careful not to read this passage too literally, right? You also want to be careful not to read this dismissively. Just dismiss what Isaiah is saying here. This is just some kind of pipe dream. This is just wishful thinking. No, no it's not. Some of you know that, listen, in the context of the Bible, what Isaiah here envisions for the world, this is not an anomaly, right? Listen, what Isaiah here envisions for the world in these verses, this is consistent, isn't it? Consistent with the promise from God that you find throughout Scripture, throughout the Bible. Listen, God promises again and again, God Himself tells us that the day is coming when God Himself, God Himself will set right everything that is wrong in this world. Everything set right. And that's, that's what Isaiah envisions here. Notice first, I, I, Isaiah just envisions God's truth filling this planet. Sometimes you just feel like the whole world is filled with lies, and he, he, he just envisions God's truth filling everywhere, nations streaming to the temple to learn the, the ways of God. He also just envisions God's justice filling the world, God Himself settling disputes between people, the rich no longer oppressing the poor, the strong no longer intimidating the weak. He just sees God's truth filling the world, God's justice filling the world, and then He also envisions the world filled with God's peace. Nations taking uh, weapons that were designed for killing human beings and then transforming them into farming implements designed to growing food for, for giving life, beating uh, swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. It's just this, this bright, bright prophecy, and this is the essence of the prophecy. Here's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying that the way this world is now is not the way it will always be. How many of you think that's good news? The way this world is now 
It's not the way it's always going to be. Now, now, to a certain degree, you can kind of recognize that this, this prophecy of Isaiah, it's already starting to be fulfilled. With, with the first coming of Christ, with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, the, the words of this prophecy, their fulfillment started. So, for example, when Isaiah wrote this, this prophecy about the nations of the world hearing the word of God, when he wrote these words, the words of Yahweh, the words of God, they, they, were, ba- they were basically restricted geographically to, um, to an area of land about the size of New Jersey. So in the whole planet, in the whole planet, all the nations of this world, no one knew anything out at all about God's law except in this little tiny place called Israel. Well, you know what? Today, people who love God's Word and worship God's Son comprise the majority populations in 158 countries and territories around the world. Two-thirds of the nations of this world are majority Christian. So, so at the time Isaiah had this vision, you know, he can't even imagine the nations knowing the Word of God. In a certain sense, this is already happening. Now, another example, when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, when he wrote these words about the end of warfare, I think that the powerful um, violent empires of the world, if, if like the king of Assyria or the king of Babylon would have heard what Isaiah was writing, they would have just laughed in his face. They would have just scoffed. That's, that's ridiculous, right? Listen, um, today, Isaiah 6 verse 4 is inscribed in stone on a statue right in front of the UN. Did you know that? It, there was a statue donated to the United Nations by the Soviet Union in 1959, and right there, you can go see it. It says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So when Isaiah wrote these words about an end of warfare, the, the, the powerful empires, they would have laughed at this. And listen, today, admittedly, oh my, we, so, we fall so far short of this, right? But at least today, even atheistic nations like the Soviet Union was, would look at these words and hold them up as an ideal. So so to a certain degree, you could say that this prophecy, it's already starting to be fulfilled. Already, right? But not yet. (laughs) I mean, not yet. You, you, you read this and you realize, oh, wait, man, we are, not, we are not there yet, are we? The, full, the fullness of this vision that Isaiah had will not be fulfilled until when? Do you know the answer? Until the day when the Son of God Himself physically returns to this world. And I don't know if you've heard the news yet, so let me tell you. He's coming. He's coming again. It's interesting how, how many of the songs that we sing in church deal with that and rejoice in that. You, 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 you may know some of these songs. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart, then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. 
And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Lo, he comes with clouds descending once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia, alleluia. God appears on earth to reign. He's coming on the clouds and kings and kingdoms will bow down and every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise. For who is like the Lord Almighty? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. You know the songs? You know this one? No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Why, why, do we, why do we sing these things? And you know, listen, again and again, in song after song, century after century, men and women of faith in Jesus have joined their voices together and they've sung about this one great truth. Our future is bright. Amen? He's coming back. So what do we see in Isaiah? Our world is dark. Our future is bright, and thirdly, our calling as God's people is clear. Now, let, let, me, let me just pose a question for us to consider. Here's the question. In view of the fact that Christ will return to make all things right in this world, question, what are we as God's people called to do? What are we supposed to be doing? Now, now some, some would say, you know what, we're not really called to do anything. Our job is not to usher in the kingdom of God. That's God's job. All we are called to do is just wait, wait. Here's an example. William Carey ran into that view. William Carey was a Baptist pastor in England in the 1700s. He's called the father of the modern missionary movement because he's the first person of his generation to think about traveling to another part of the world to tell people about Jesus, people who had never heard of him before. As a young minister, he began to dream about traveling to India where millions had never heard the gospel and sharing the word of Christ with them. And in 1786, he was at a pastor's gathering in Northampton, England, and he was sharing with these other ministers this dream he had of traveling to, to the other side of the world. And, and, and when he got done speaking, one of, the, uh, one of the leading pastors at that gathering stood up and said this, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. Now, that pastor probably knew this vision from Isaiah of someday the nations coming to learn the ways of God, but he just thought, it's not our job to do that. That's, it, we're not the ones to bring the kingdom. We're not supposed to share the gospel. Just let, let our calling is just wait. I, I, I ran into that viewpoint when I was, uh, I remember when I was a, a high schooler in Sunday school in the church where I grew up, and our Sunday school teacher was giving us kind of a true and, fall, true and false quiz and I remember one of the questions. He said, he said, kids, true or false? Christians should work to end world hunger. I said, true. He looked at me and said, false. 
He said, you know, Jesus said, you will always have the poor among you. You trying to make Jesus a liar? Right? It's not, it's not our job to fix the world. It's not our job to feed the hungry. God will fix things when Jesus returns. So, so some people would have this view. What is our calling? What are we supposed to do in the light of the fact that the kingdom is coming? Some would say we don't do anything. Just wait. Now, other people go to the opposite extreme. They would say our calling is not to wait. Our calling is to work. If the kingdom of God is going to come here and transform this world, listen, it's up to you and me to make this happen. You know, we, we need to take on injustice. We need to overthrow unrighteousness. We need to seize power. We need to change the laws. We are called to work to make this happen. Now, strangely, I think you could make the case that that view is embraced both by Christian nationalists on the right and by social justice warriors on the left. Polar opposite groups politically, but both, both have embraced this view that, that uh, human power is the way to bring God's kingdom here. Did you know that Jesus rejected that view? Jesus rejected that use of power. You, you read in the Gospels that there was great desire among the people for Jesus to kind of raise up as king and, 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 and muster an army and overthrow the Romans and bring the kingdom of God to the land. He didn't, he didn't let them do that. John 6 verse 15 says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. John, John 18 verse 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. He said, but now my kingdom is from another place. One highly respected um, Christian author N.T. Wright writes this. He says, we are not building the kingdom by our efforts. No. He wrote, the kingdom remains God's gift, new creation, sheer grace. So, to, to return to the question I, I raised before, in, in view of the fact that Christ will return and make everything right that's wrong in this world, what are we as God's people called to do? So, some would say, we are called to do nothing but wait. Others would say, we are called to do everything, so work, right? Isaiah says, no. He says, our calling is neither to wait nor to work. He says, our calling is to walk. That's the metaphor he uses, walk. Verse 5, he says, come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, what, what does Isaiah mean by this walk in the light of the Lord? It's very interesting. In the New Testament, the author of 1 John uses essentially that same phrase, walking in the light of God. He uses that as a metaphor for the life of faith that Christians are called to live. He, he says, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. He said, but if we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. It, so it's interesting. New Testament writers took that same phrase and said, this walking in the light, this is a metaphor for what it just leave, means to live by faith in Jesus. Now, Isaiah wouldn't have thought exactly that. What did he mean by walking in the light? Well, at, at the very minimum, he seems to be rejecting 
both waiting and working. He's rejecting both, both uh, the complacency of inactivity and the arrogance of human effort. And he's calling again, calling us people, simply live by faith. Just live by faith. Take the next step. That's what walking is. Take the next step. Live by faith in the light of God. I think what this means is we are called to let our lives in the present age be shaped by our hope of the coming age. What would it look like for you this week to, to let your life in this age be shaped not by what's going on around you, but by your hope of what's coming in the future? I, I think if we did this, we would share the gospel with others. We would help the poor. We would feed the hungry. We would welcome the immigrant. We would turn from our sins. Not, 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 not because we think that through our effort we're ushering in the kingdom. We would just do these things because we know that, listen, the kingdom is coming, whether we like it or not. The kingdom is coming. And when the king comes, would you agree? We just, when, when the kingdom comes, we want the king to find us doing those things that please him. That's our calling, just to live by faith. What, what would that look like for you this week? To take the next step of faith with Christ. Just live by faith and trust Him. So our, our world is dark, but our future is bright. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that the way things are now is not the way they will always be. Thank you that Jesus has come and already the kingdom is among us. Thank you that he is coming and the kingdom will be here in its fullness. Grip us with that promise and give us grace to live accordingly. In Christ's name, amen.